What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Demby, and you are listening to Code Switch from NPR. Okay, so the NCAA, the body that governs much of collegiate sports, has been around for a real long time. Like, even before a lot of the big pro leagues, like the NFL or the NBA, even existed. And the NCAA has long argued that the whole point of college sports, the reason that people are fans of them, is because the students who play those sports are not pros, that they're amateurs playing for things like school pride and the principles of sportsmanship and competition, yada, yada, yada. Paying those athletes the NCAA maintained would taint college sports. It would ruin those sports for the fans. It would ruin it for the players. Besides that, they said many of those so-called student athletes already get scholarships to play sports. Why should they also be compensated on top of it? For a long time, it seemed, most people agreed with those arguments. This, by the way, is all while the NCAA made billions of dollars in revenue each year from these same sports it insisted were not professional. That was money used to pay everyone but the athletes. Well, earlier this week, the Supreme Court handed down a decision that could potentially completely upend college sports. The justices unanimously ruled that the NCAA could not keep the athletes who played those sports from being paid. In his opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote, Nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. Now, this case that the Supreme Court decided this week was focused on pretty small payments to athletes related to things like, you know, college expenses, books, things like that. But it might open the door to bigger payments, even potentially compensation to those athletes outright. We thought, in light of this ruling, we should revisit an episode we did a few years ago where we talked to someone at the center of a very similar lawsuit. His name is Ed O'Bannon, and in the early 1990s, he was a star basketball player for the UCLA Bruins. And he took us back to his greatest college basketball moment in 1995 when he led his team to the national championship. The quest for the crown is underway. Jim, we're going to see some of the best long-armed, quick athletes that there is in college basketball. And listeners, let me tell you, in the 1995 tournament, Ed went ham. It was like a movie, you know, how they're playing in slow motion and they keep flashing back to things in the past, workouts and games and wins and losses. I could see all of that in my head as the time was running out and you could hear the crowd. And I just remember looking up into the stands and seeing my parents and seeing the Bruins. There was a wizard in the stands and some magic on the floor. And everybody's going crazy. Jim Eric and UCLA can hang a banner in Westwood. I felt like I was floating on air. In the championship game, in front of more than 38,000 fans and 27 million viewers at home, UCLA defeated the University of Arkansas to win the national title. Ed was named the tournament's most outstanding player. He even made the cover of Sports Illustrated for putting the storied UCLA basketball program back on the map. And he said it was the culmination of years of hard work. I was on campus primarily to play basketball. I knew that. 
That's why I was recruited. Ed and his teammates dedicated most of their time to basketball. Practice usually started around 2 o'clock, so you had to lift weight, get your ankles taped, get warmed up, get some shots up, and then practice would start. Once practice was over, we would do sprints and that sort of thing. Dinner after that, got to be 9, close to 10 o'clock, go to bed and get up and do it all over again. And that's a day where the team didn't have to play a game or travel for one. A regular day, a practice day, that's 40 hours a week minimum. And, oh, by the way, I went to school as well. I had classes. For Ed and his teammates, who were students at UCLA, basketball was their full-time job with all the pressures that come with a full-time job. But Ed and his teammates were student athletes. They were amateurs, not professionals, at least according to the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association. I was wondering what that stood for. Yeah, Thank you. We kept saying NAACP. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all that work they were doing, all that hard work, it was worth a lot of money to a lot of people. Ed's coach, he got paid. Right after they won the national title, he signed a new contract with UCLA that would have paid him $2 million over five years. The NCAA, they got paid. In 1995, they made $216 million Mm. for the TV rights to the NCAA tournament. And the TV networks? They got paid because just like the Super Bowl, companies shell out ridiculous amounts of money to run ads during March Madness. Everybody gets paid. Everybody except the players. Players like Ed. Why? Because the NCAA maintained that they were being paid with a free college education. One of the things that is kind of an underlining subject in all of this is the two sports that are the moneymaker sports, football and basketball. Most of the athletes are black. These players playing for quote-unquote free, that has got to stop, plain and simple. Ed's story is a familiar one. He had a short-lived career in the NBA because of injuries he developed as a college player, and he didn't see much court time. He retired when he was 32, ended up in Las Vegas, where he sells cars. So fast forward to 2009. Ed is chilling at an old friend's house, and his friend's son, a kid named Spencer, was playing a video game on his Xbox called NCAA Basketball. And in that game, you can play as almost any team and almost any player, even famous teams from the past, like the 1995 UCLA Bruins. He puts the game in, and Spencer's playing me, you know, my avatar on a video game. The the guy has got on number 31. He's ball-headed. He's black. He shoots it left-handed. And the jump shot is nice, by the way. I have to say that. And it was me. And they were my teammates. And there was no doubt. My name wasn't on my jersey, and that was a little disappointing. But other than that, it was spitting image of me. And I was excited. But then he gave me a nudge and said, hey, you know, we paid 60 bucks for this, and you didn't get a dime. And we laughed about it initially, but uh, that kind of started the, the wheels turning in my head. So it turns out that way back when Ed was 18, he had to sign some papers to play basketball at UCLA. One set of those papers was basically an agreement. So he would play basketball for UCLA. They would, in turn, give him a scholarship. But some of those papers came with some stipulations that he wasn't really checking for when he was 18. It binds you to that university, and you basically give away your rights to your likeness forever in perpetuity. 
That's how he ended up in a video game almost two decades later. Ed realized, damn, the industry of college sports was still making money off him and all the other college athletes whose likenesses appeared in that game. So a few weeks after Ed saw himself in that game, he got a phone call out of the blue from some influential people in the youth basketball world. They wanted to file a lawsuit against the NCAA because they said that the NCAA's control of college athletes and how much they could earn violated laws around fair competition. And since Ed had been a college basketball star and was a family man, they thought he would be the perfect face for their lawsuit. So Ed signed on to their lawsuit, which became Ed O'Bannon versus the NCAA. Originally, I wanted to pull back the curtain on how the NCAA does business. And I wanted people to talk about this, to get the NCAA to at least admit that they were wrong in using former players' likeness for profit. And then they eventually branched off into current players owning their likeness and why they should. And then it branched off later on into actual current players getting paid from the universities or from the NC2A, not only basketball and football, but all athletes, men and women. So So you open up this kind of Pandora's box in a lot of ways, like, okay. Basically, yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) After the break, we're going to get into big-time college sports, money, and what race has to do with all of it. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Wise, the smart way to move money around the world. Playing hide-and-seek is fun, but not when it comes to exchange rates. When you send, spend, or receive money internationally, you want to see that you're getting the real exchange rate. The WISE account always gives you the real rate when you send or spend between 55 currencies. You pay a low conversion fee and see everything up front. See what fairness in international finance feels like. Try WISE for free at wise.com NPR. Legendary oceanographer Sylvia Earle has spent eight decades exploring underwater, and she has good news. Areas that are protected, you can see recovery. How We Save the Ocean, part two of our series on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Jean. Shireen. Code switch. Let's lay out the landscape of big-time college sports for the non-college sports fans like me so we can get a better sense of who the players are. Pun intended. I see what you did there. It's explanatory comma time. So the NCAA has thousands of member colleges and universities and hundreds of thousands of student athletes. But the best sports teams, the best players, they play at the top level. That's Division I. The hundreds of schools in Division I organize themselves into smaller leagues, which are called conferences, usually by region, but not always. And people might get mad at this, but from what I understand, there are only five of these leagues or conferences that really matter. They make almost all the money, they win almost all the trophies, and they're known as the Power Five. Am I right, Gene? Right, the Power Five. So every school that you might have heard of, every school you think of when you think of big-time college sports, University of Texas, Ohio State, UCLA, which is Ed's alma mater, they play in the Power Five. In 2016, the Power Five conferences, they made $6 billion, with a B, dollars from sports. So where does all this money go? We asked Amy McCormick, who's a professor emeritus at Michigan State University College of Law. Primarily, it goes to pay for coaching salaries, salaries of administrators like uh, the head of the NCAA, the head of the conferences, 
There are some coaches now making over $10 million a year, and a lot of assistant coaches are even making over a million dollars a year. Amy and her husband, Robert McCormick, who's also a professor emeritus at Michigan State Law School, wrote an academic paper in 2010 called Major College Sports, A Modern Apartheid. Here's Amy again. Even if the initial purpose was not racial, they now know that it has that impact because they have been told about the demographics. So let's talk about those demographics. Mm -hmm. At the Power Five schools, just 2%, 2% of the students are black men. But 55% of the football teams and 56% of the men's basketball players are black men. White men really are running the show in college athletics at the expense of black male student-athlete success. That's Sean Harper. He's a professor and the executive director of the Center on Race and Equity at the University of Southern California. He says that these demographics rest against a broader historical context because many of the Power Five schools, they were officially segregated up until the 1960s. They were conceived as spaces for white people, and as a result, their campus cultural life, their alumni fan bases, remain overwhelmingly white. And that exacerbates some of the messy racial tensions on campus. When we've been at places doing those studies, places that have, you know, powerhouse sports programs, we will ask the Black and Latino students, you know, do you go to football games or basketball games? And they will say no. And we will ask why. And they would explain to us that that very much feels like a white space. Then they explain to us, listen, man, I've spent my entire day being the only Black student in almost every one of my classes. I'm the only Black student on my residence hall floor. Why in the world would I want to sign myself up on Saturday to go and be among only a few Black folks in a sea of 70,000 white people? And there's some weird paradoxes here. So there are mostly Black faces on the court or on the football field, but almost none in the stands. And while Black men are basically invisible on these campuses, during any given academic year, the most well-known undergraduate student on one of these campuses is likely to be a Black Heisman Trophy candidate or a Black basketball phenom like Ed Mm O'Bannon. And Harper argues that sports affects the way that people think about all of the Black men on their campuses as not real students. Hmm. So what about the idea that these athletes are being compensated with college educations? Harper crunched the numbers for the Power Five conferences, and he found that nearly half of the Black athletes in the two revenue-generating sports, that's football and basketball, they do not earn a degree. Hmm. So they're creating wealth, they're creating all this wealth, but a big chunk of them are not graduating, and they're not being paid. So why aren't they being paid? Well, apparently most Americans don't want them to be paid. According to a poll conducted last fall by The Washington Post and ABC News, nearly two out of three Americans, in fact, think that college athletes should not be paid. Shereen, this will not surprise you or anyone who listens to Code Switch. There's a big racial split on how people answer that question. So a majority of black people think that Mm -hmm. they should be paid, but about 60% of white people think they should not be paid. To teach Natetta is a political scientist at UMass Amherst who studies race, ethnicity, and public opinion. I was listening to ESPN Radio, and it was Colin Cowherd, and he was discussing the controversy about paying players. And he made this comment that if college athletes were paid, we know what they would do. They would go out, and they would buy rims, and they would buy weed, and they would buy kicks, and they would spend it on girls. 
And when the sports host got called out for that comment, he was all, but I didn't even say anything about race. (laughs) But that controversy made Nateta and his colleagues Kevin Walston and Lauren A. McCarthy want to study just how much people's perceptions of what college athletes look like informed the way they thought about whether they should be paid. Hmm. So he set up an experiment that tested racial resentment and directly asked whether college athletes should be compensated. And what we found was that the strongest factor that predicts whites' opposition to pay-for-play is their level of racial animus towards African Americans or their level of racial prejudice towards African Americans. Now, Letta said that race does not explain everything here. They found that age mattered. Older white people were more opposed to paying players than younger white people were. And the people who attended those Power 5 schools we've been talking about, they were more likely to oppose paying college athletes. So wait, is the takeaway here that the only people who don't want to pay college athletes are racist? (laughs) Um, No, that's not exactly what's happening. Of course not. Take this guy, for example. His name is Echo Yanka. He's a law professor. He's a brother. And he wrote this essay in The New Yorker arguing that the NCAA is unfair, but he still doesn't think that college athletes should be paid. So I think paying college athletes is almost certainly bad for the athletes, terrible for the universities, and terrible for the sports they play. Other than that, it's a great idea. There's very little reason to think that a young athlete's life will be in any substantial way better if they become, so to speak, employees of the university. Of course, I'm sensitive that many of these young men are under tremendous financial difficulty. I understand that you know a good number of them come from backgrounds which are difficult or even impoverished. And I'm well aware that the demands of especially the big-time college sports, but almost all college sports, are so consuming that there seems something unfair about their having to balance these two projects. The problem is that paying them doesn't help relieve that stress. Paying them only makes it the case that that stress seems justified. Paying college athletes will almost certainly exacerbate a problem that has been going on for generations, where athletes of a certain number of sports are seen as ever more divided from the actual student body. They're seen as tangential. They're seen as not real students. Um, And indeed, given that they will then have to trade some of the minimal protections they have as student athletes in order to simply be employees of the university, at least in some capacity, it seems like a pretty raw deal. All of this, by the way, it should be pointed out, is in exchange for what it would actually be, for the vast majority of athletes, a remarkably small amount of money on the free market. Because you're saying that the best players would get the most money, but most players would get a pittance, probably, if it was not equalized. The point is, is that it's awfully hard to project which kids will be superstars. So outside of the small number of can't-miss prospects, most kids will actually be paid on some scale that reflects the deep uncertainty about how good they'll be. And if we want to look to see what that looks like, it's not hard. We don't have to use our imagination. We can look at the minor leagues, right? Minor league basketball, minor league baseball, minor league hockey. Most of these young people are working nonstop. Most of them are just as talented, if not more talented than the vast majority of college athletes. Mm -hmm. And most of them are paid roughly what a Starbucks barista is paid. And in exchange of all that, they give up their opportunity to go to college, to pursue their dreams, and to turn out to not be a 20-year-old superstar, but maybe a 40-year-old functioning adult. Hmm. You say that there is a racial component to the way that people think about the minor league systems, right? And and the prospect of paying 
student athletes in basketball and football. Yeah. So one thing I worry about is this argument that, well, these students aren't really students anyway, so let's just pay them. And I do think that has a racial component, right? Now, look, it's not entirely racial, of course. Part of it is that people are well aware and turned off by the huge financial incentive that the universities have. But it's also true that there are a ton of different students on every college campus who are not straight-A math students, right? Somehow, when we think about young black athletes, what they do, the sort of physical talent that they bring is not valued the same way that the ballerinas is or the chess player is or the musician is. And I do find that worrying. I wonder why it is that the fact that these are multi-talented people whose skills may not be at its highest in science class is so quickly dismissed. So that's one feature, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The second feature is it's very clear that the true developmental league of the NBA is currently college basketball. The true developmental league of the NFL is entirely college football. Mm -hmm. And somehow the answer seems to be disconnect these students from education rather than why don't we do what we do with other sports and set up a robust semi-pro league, right? One that would allow some students, those who are actually involved and engaged to remain student athletes and allow those for whom being a student athlete has no part of their project to go on to do what they want to do. But it seems like even with that system, there are still going to be a lot of kids who have no sort of illusions about the fact that they're not going to go pro, who will go to college, who will try to make the most of their college experience, and who will still generate tons of revenue for their colleges, and they will still be personally struggling financially. And I'm just curious what happens to those kids. Look, I think that's a great question, and, and it gets the heart of how complex and hard this is. And here are my thoughts on it. If you're a student athlete who comes to Michigan well aware that you're never going to be a professional, then there's a real sense in my mind's eye that you will make the deal that really makes being a student athlete worth it. That is to say that your education will actually be valuable to you in a way that matters. You'll be much less likely to be able to be fooled or to to trade on these fumes of dreams that allow school after school after school to give college athletes empty classes with no value that end up with empty degrees with no value. Mm -hmm. I am not interested in a bunch of young men who work for three or four years for a university making, again, a minor league salary, which if people actually looked at what that would be is quite minimal. I'm interested in the next generation of doctors and lawyers and bankers. And in particular, for the sports that are dominated by African-American men, I'm deeply interested in the next generation of black doctors, black lawyers, and black bankers, rather than kids who are seduced into trading that for making spending money from 18 to 22. Echo Yanka is a professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. He wrote an essay for The New Yorker called Why NCAA Athletes Shouldn't Be Paid. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. So what happened to Ed O'Bannon v. the NCAA? Remember, he was suing the association after he got no money from that video game he saw. And when he first decided to sue, it seemed like a long shot that his side would win. Plenty of athletes have tried to take on the NCAA and failed. But by the time Ed's case eventually went to court, a full five years after he saw his digital self in that video game, the landscape had shifted. Because more and more people, even if they didn't believe that athletes should be paid— felt that there was something unfair about college coaches making millions of dollars while athletes made none. 
So in 2014, after a heated three-week trial, a district judge sided with Ed. She said the NCAA could not prohibit athletes for selling the rights to their names, images, and likenesses. And that judge said that athletes could be paid, but only up to a point. There were some stipulations. They could be paid up to $5,000 a year beyond whatever it costs for tuition and room and board. And that will be paid out only after they graduated. It was potentially a game changer. Here's Ed O'Bannon. The athletes were awarded a stipend uh, up to $5,000 and or the cost of attendance at their universities. That was appealed eventually and uh, overturned and it died at the footsteps of the Supreme Court. So it sounds like a mixed bag then. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Two steps forward, one step back, that sort of thing. So the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the part of the original ruling that said that players could be paid. It's been a few years since this trial, and the NCAA has since allowed for players to be given more than they were before, with things like stipends and grants that will allow them to cover the full cost of attending college, not just tuition, room, and board. And that video game company that created the game that Ed appeared in, as well as a college football game, they stopped making them all together. So players aren't getting paid from those at all. And right now, there's a sprawling FBI investigation looking into a complicated bribery scheme meant to steer the best high school basketball players to certain colleges. Whether it's under the table or above board, there is plenty of money to be made for some people while they're on campus. But the overwhelming majority, thousands of college basketball players, won't see any of it. 99% of them will never go pro. We reached out to the NCAA for comment on this episode, and they didn't get back to us. But during Ed O'Bannon's trial, the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, took the stand. And he testified that amateurism was one of the NCAA's bedrock principles. He said, quote, The notion of amateurism inside the NCAA has been steadfastly that one will not be paid to play their sport. According to USA Today, the next year, Mark Emmert took home nearly $2 million dollars in total compensation. All right, y'all, that's our show. You should follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. That is also our screen name on Instagram. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. This episode was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez and Kumari Devarajan. The updated version was produced by Alyssa Jong-Perry. It was edited by Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. A special thanks to Billy Hawkins and Roger Knoll, who helped us get our bearings for this episode. And Ed O'Bannon's book is called Court Justice. Court Justice. Get it? And shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Leah Danella, Karen Grigsby Bates, Jess Kung, L.A. Johnson, Natalie Escobar, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our intern is Carmen Molina Acosta. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen will be back soon. Be easy, y'all. I'm Gregory Warner, host of NPR's Rough Translation. The military helped launch Silicon Valley, but now they're kind of on the outs. You're surprised that you look at me and say, no, that's not possible. Yes, it is. And so it just dawned, this is just not going anywhere. Stories of communication and miscommunication each week on Homefront from Rough Translation.